welcome to episode five of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode will discuss new computer algorithms and software tools for analysis of multivariate spectroscopic data. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy and your podcast host. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Paul Gemperlein, who is Dean of the Graduate School and faculty member in the Department of Chemistry at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Dr. Gemperlein's area of research is chemometrics, with more than 60 publications and $1.8 million in external grant funds from government and industrial sources. Dr. Gempelein has served as Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Chemometrics from 2007 to 2018. His work has led to advances in methods for monitoring, understanding, and controlling batch chemical and pharmaceutical processes. He has developed methods of cluster analysis and classification for rapid non-destructive testing of raw materials and finished products, and has been issued U.S. patents for his work. We have invited Paul to our Analytically Speaking podcast to discuss his research on development of new computer algorithms and software tools for analysis of multivariate spectroscopic data. Well, Paul, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jerry. It's my pleasure to join you for this podcast. Well, Paul, tell us a little more about your history in exploring new computer algorithms and uh, particularly for analysis of multivariate spectroscopic data. Well, I got bit by the computer programming bug as an undergraduate chemistry major when a physical chemistry faculty member taught us to write Fortran programs to analyze our lab data. Uh, from there, I went on to work on computer automation of lab instruments for my PhD, which included some a lot of assembly language processing. Towards the end of my PhD degree, I, I noticed early work at resolving overlapping GCMS peaks which was very interesting to me. So I pursued this line of research when I began my faculty career at East Carolina University. And as my knowledge of chemometrics evolved, MATLAB came on the scene. And in the early 1990s, I recognized it as a game changer for prototyping new algorithms and chemometrics. And so I've been making extensive use of MATLAB ever since. Well, that's very interesting. MATLAB has been a tremendous tool. And what do you think are the greatest contributions to analysis brought about by chemometrics and the concepts of chemometrics? Understanding the multivariate nature of chemical measurements is an important concept that's been brought to the field by chemometrics. The methods are useful for unmixing and understanding complex measurements or signals. And in these cases, uh, it's often said that math is, can be cheaper than chemistry. So rather than trying to unmix a complicated mixture with, say, chromatography, we can, in some cases, unmix these mixture signals with some mathematical procedures. That sounds very complex. What are some of your all-time favorite books or papers covering chemometric topics? Well, um, my first introduction to chemometrics was the book titled Factor Analysis in Chemistry by Ed Malinowski. And uh, that was the first edition in 1980. 
I discovered this book while I was finishing my PhD in analytical chemistry, and I still refer to some of the concepts I learned from that book. Um, while I don't usually like to promote my own work, there is a book, Practical Guide to Chemometrics, um, which I was editor of. Three of the chapters in this book evolved from my lecture notes, and the book contains a lot of MATLAB examples. There's an additional seven chapters that are designed to provide a sound foundation in most the most important areas of chemometrics. What do you see multivariate spectroscopic data as being, and what's unique about the information content of multivariate data versus univariate data? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, you know, um, nearly all spectroscopic measurements we make these days are inherently multivariate. It's easy to measure full spectra with many digitized points of many samples during the course of an experiment. And so when we use multivariate methods to analyze these kinds of data sets, we gain access to additional information. It comes to us in the form of correlation so that the total information content that we can extract is really greater than the sum of the individual parts or the what's in the individual spectrum by themselves or signals at individual wavelengths. So if we were to just analyze our data one wavelength or frequency at a time, we would not be able to see correlations between samples or wavelengths and we'd miss out on this extra information. And over the years that's been called the so the uh, multivariate advantage of chemometrics. Well, thank you on that. Um, you've published several articles with a focus on self-modeling curve resolution, or SMCR. So can you tell us what self-modeling curve resolution is and why is this method important or useful? Sure. Well, um, SMCR, or self-modeling curve resolution, also goes by the name MCR, or multivariate curve resolution. And it refers to a collection of methods that allows one to mathematically resolve partially separated signals from an evolutionary process. So what do I mean by an evolutionary process? It might be a chromatogram with a series of overlapping peaks, or it might be a batch reaction that all evolves over time where spectra are being measured at regular intervals during the process. And in these cases, by applying physically or chemically meaningful constraints, an iterative fitting process is used to estimate pure component spectra and pure component composition profiles. So taking GCMS as an example, some useful constraints and meaning, chemically meaningful constraints might be non-negativity in unimodal, unimodality. In other words, we expect the resolved concentration profiles to be non-negative, and we would expect the resolved mass spectra to be non-negative. And furthermore, we would expect the resolved peak profiles in the concentration profiles to be unimodal. Well, we've included in the podcast notes with the DOI links several of your articles, so we hope that our listeners will take a look at those. Uh, the, and then I wanted to ask you, what mathematical tools are used when performing SMCR or MCR? So these kinds of problems um, are usually solved using alternating least squares algorithm. 
the calculation starts with an initial estimate of pure peaks or pure spectra, a guess. And in many cases, a wide range of initial guesses will produce acceptable results. So in the alternating least squares method, you start with an estimate of, say, of a concentration profile. And then a least squares estimate is used to, to calculate the pure component spectra matching that profile. And the estimated pure component spectra then would have to conform to the constraints, such as non-negativity. Then once we have this new estimate of the pure component spectra, we use it to produce a least squares estimate of the pure concentration profiles that conform to the constraints as well. And this cyclical process is repeated until convergence. In other words, no further improvement in the resolved profiles is obtained. There's many other clever methods that have been developed and reported over the years, such as evolving factor analysis and window factor analysis, but many of them uh, involve this alternating least squares process. Well, are there limitations on the kinds of data that can be analyzed using this technique? And, and to say this in another way, how is the data structured for optimum results using SMCR? Well, sure. Well, the most important limitation is that the data must follow a linear additive model. That means that the spectrum of a mixture should be a mixture of the pure component spectra in proportion to the composition of the components in the mixture. So aside from this basic requirement, many kinds of mixtures and many different kinds of spectroscopic methods can be used from UV-Vis, near-IR, infrared, mass spec, NMR, molecular fluorescence, X-ray fluorescence, and so on. The mixtures could be partially resolved by chromatography. It could be cross-section of thin films where Reactions or mixing might occur between the layers of the thin film or in hyperspectral images, say of pharmaceutical tablets, where grains of active ingredients can be observed in a tablet along with binders and inert materials or excipients. Or it could be reaction mixtures who composition, whose composition profiles evolve over time and then can be analyzed. Really, the range of mixtures that could be analyzed is limited by one's imagination. Well, can you tell us a little about the history of SMCRs? How did it come about and when and why? Oh, sure. Um, SMCR started with a seminal publication in 1991 by Lawton and Sylvester, who were at the time working in Codex research labs in Rochester. And they showed in this publication that a two-component mixture could be resolved by imposing non-negativity constraints. Um, this was later extended to three components in 1984 in a paper by me and a nearly simultaneous paper published by Van de Hinst. And there's been a long uh, string of papers published on this topic since then. What are the soft and hard constraints in SMCR and how are they used? Well, hard constraints are constraints that are enforced strictly. So for example, when a non-negativity constraint is imposed, because the 
data is measured from an experimental process, there's always some noise or experimental error present. And for example, take the resolution of overlapping uh, liquid chromatography peaks measured by diode array spectroscopy, for, um, for example. There are going to be regions in the concentration profiles that approach the baseline. And in these regions, it is expected that there would be some small negative and positive deviations from the baseline just due to the noise in the measurements. So if non-negativity constraints are strictly enforced, as in hard constraints, then the resolved concentration profiles can become distorted because the negative values are not allowed. So um, we devised some algorithms that impose soft constraints. And by doing so, small negative deviations are allowed and the maximum allowable deviations can be easily estimated by propagating estimates of the noise in the measurements into the least squares results. Well, as our podcast listeners, if they look into this with more detail and start to read these articles, they're gonna see terms like non-negativity, unimodality, equality, and closure as uh, referring to the constraints. Could you give us some definitions of what each of these mean? Sure, I'll take each one of those in turn. Um, so non-negativity is a physically or chemically meaningful constraint that we apply when we know that the composition profiles must be positive and the spectral response must be positive. Um, non-negativity would not work, for example, in circular dichroism. Uh, unimodality means that the estimated concentration profile is allowed to have only one peak maximum. And this could be very useful in chromatography uh, applications. Equality constraints can be used when one knows the composition of one or more ingredients in a mixture, or one knows one or more of the pure component spectra. So for example, if we, we were monitoring a batch reaction mixture and you took grad if, and you took grab samples at specific points in time and analyzed them by some reference method, you could use these values and incorporate them in the problem as equality constraints to improve the estimated profiles. And lastly, closure constraints can be used in the case where the sum of component concentration remain constant throughout an experiment. So for example, in a kinetics reaction where two reactants A plus B react to form product 2P, the concentration of all species remains constant over time and there a closure constraint could be used. A similar situation could be encountered, say, in the resolution of equilibrium mixtures, where the concentration of components evolve as a function of pH. Well, that's very interesting. Yes, those can uh, those terms can seem very complex, and I thank you for revealing to us a good definition for each of them. So, what are the limitations of this method? You know, is there controversy surrounding the discussion and the use of this method? Well, yes, there is. Uh, first, users should 
be aware that the results produced by SMCR methods are not necessarily unique. So the estimated concentration profiles and pure component spectra can often be represented as a band of feasible solution that meet the constraint requirements. And it's very important for users to know how wide these feasible bands are. And there are now some software packages available that can compute them. But more importantly, I think it's important for us to consider that these methods are really methods of exploratory analysis. An analyst approaches these kind of problems with certain assumptions, like, I know what the starting material spectrum looks like, and I think this product spectrum should be X or Y. How many intermediates are present, and what do their concentration profiles and spectra look like under the assumptions of non-negativity? So by making these kinds of assumptions, the analyst is approaching the problem with a perceived notion of what the results should look like. These SMCR methods are very powerful and an experienced user can add constraints that would produce a desired result. Well, this is very different from the usual scientific method where one makes a hypothesis and then tests it experimentally. Here, we're approaching the problem with some preconceived notion of what the solution ought to look like. We can in the analysis, make the results conform or contort to what we think the answer ought to look like. So here's an alternative way of thinking about this. In SMCR methods, really, the hypothesis, the science research hypothesis should be, does there exist a non-negative solution of three components to this problem? We provide an initial guess, and the software produces a result. Then to test the hypothesis, one should turn off the constraints at the solution point to see if the solution is still the same. And if it's not, that means there are active constraints at convergence and the hypothesis isn't true. Well, in one of your papers for the Journal of Analytical Chemistry, that was in 2003, volume 75, page 4236, you state that, quote, the SMCR method offers a substantial improvement in the ability to resolve time-dependent concentration profiles from mixture spectra recorded as a function of time. Could you explain that, Paul? What is the meaning of this? So um, one approach to resolving profiles might be to select a certain wavelength and plot that concentration profile as a function of time. But if that wavelength isn't fully selective for the component of interest, then the profile that you get isn't going to be well resolved. By using SMCR methods, you can take these partially selective measurements and by applying constraints, arrive at a better solution. All right. Well, thank you. That was uh, you're unpacking something that's fairly very complex. So, um, how can one find the software tools to use and explore this technique? Oh well, there are several research groups that publish uh, public domain versions of their SMCR software. 
Um, most notably, there's a website called www.mcrals.info. And this is from the group of Anna de Juan and Roma Towler in Barcelona. Um, they have several MATLAB software packages there called MCR ALS and MCR Bands. There are commercial software packages. The PLS Toolbox from Eigenvector Research has a MCR LS, MCR ALS routine in it. So if you're looking for a, a version of software that has some commercial support, that could be a good option. The research groups are, of course, that provide MCR ALS aren't going to be able to provide you with user support. Another um, package is called FACPAC, F-A-C-P-A-C-K, and that comes from the a group in Rostock, Germany, and uh, it's useful for hard modeling of curve resolution profiles and has really good tools for finding uh, feasible bands in these solutions. Well, thanks, Paul. We'll have to add those uh, links to the podcast notes. Other than the software tools, what are some of the other best resources that listeners can go to for finding more information on this topic? Well, the the single best source of information um, would be that MCR ALS uh, website. There are some really great tutorials on that homepage and uh, also, I think, some videos on the topic. Well, thanks. And what wisdom would you share with our audience about some aspect of analytical chemistry that you've really gleaned over the years? Uh, well, I guess I'll tell a little story. I remember a conference that I was at. It was actually a Gordon Research Conference. And uh, one of the plenary speakers got up before the audience and said, I'm going to share with you the secret to chemometrics that I tell all of my students. So we were all in rapt attention. And he said, with a slide on the screen, always, 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 without exception, plot the data and then look at it. <laughs> and that's advice I give to all of my students early in their, early in their lessons. And uh, I think it's great advice for anybody who's trying to do some work in data analysis fields and chemometrics in particular. Well, thanks, Paul. Um, I have an, another question that's just maybe you can give us some insight into. What was it like to be editor-in-chief of the Journal of Chemometrics for those years? Can you say how chemometrics has developed over that period of time and the, the topics and the publications? Well, it was fascinating to receive submissions from so many different research groups across the world and to see the diversity and innovation of ideas that were being applied to solve interesting problems. How has it really changed over, over the years where you were editor-in-chief? I mean, from the beginning to say very current times in terms of the number of submissions and the quality, can you address that? Well, certainly the number of submissions had increased significantly over the years, and um, new methods, new innovative methods were continuing to be reported, which would start new trends. 
a recent one, a fairly recent one, is the analysis of variance with simultaneous component analysis, or ASCA. And um, the first publication in that came out, I think, in 2004. And it was a seminal paper that's led to uh, a lot of publications using that technique in the bioinformatics and biotechnology uh, area. That's been interesting to watch as chemometrics uh, is becoming more applied in those fields. And I think the future for chemometrics is bright in that in those application areas. Can you give us some insight into what people are now calling data analytics, which you know involves all kinds of data and mining data versus chemometrics? How would you distinguish between those subjects? Well, data analytics is is very broad. And one could consider, I think, chemometrics in some ways to be a subset of that. When people think about data analytics, or when I think about data analytics, I usually think about methods applying to very large data sets. And uh, some examples might be social network data from Instagram or Facebook. And people are looking at data mining methods to get information about how people's behaviors are changing or adjusting over time. It can be a little bit scary. Recent applications in chemometrics uh, are turning up in the omics methods, um, genomics, metabolomics, proteomics. And here you can have really vast data sets. And so some of the innovations that we're seeing in chemometrics are methods for data compression or uh, variable compression. So we can reduce a very large complex data set or distill it down into some of its essential factors and then see how those factors might help us discover uh, biomarkers for a disease, for example. Well, Paul, have you seen a lot more papers submitted related to image analysis and trying to just trying to extract the data from large images or hyperspectral image type data? Yes, that's been that. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, that's another uh, important application area for chemometrics, hyperspectral image analysis. And uh, there it's possible to resolve composition profiles that might evolve over time. For example, we did some work where we looked at kinetic modeling of temporarily resolved hyperspectral microscopic images of fluorescently labeled cells. So over time, those cells, comp the composition of the fluorescent markers in that cell are changing, whether it's bleaching or, or so forth. Uh, we were able to model that and then mathematically resolve different um, structures within the cell based on their different decay rates, for example, and their spectral profiles. Well, getting back to the Journal of Chemometrics, what are, can you give us a few exciting things that happened uh, along with chemometrics during that time, during your tenure as editor-in-chief? Were there any amazing 
papers that stand out in your mind as far as, wow, this is this was really groundbreaking type uh, research. Yeah. Well, I thought that OSCA paper that um, analysis of variance with simultaneous component analysis was was pretty um, pretty important. Currently, some of the clever innovative strategies involve bootstrapping and uh, permutation testing to look at the statistical significance of models. There is some very interesting work in multi-way modeling where you have uh, the data array really is a data cube where you have subjects maybe in rows and then you have variables measured in columns and then you have a different condition say in slices. And there's three-way methods of analysis that are very interesting. Uh, Parafac is good at decomposing three-way data arrays that have a special structure where they can be represented as a single, as a single component, as a sum of single component three-way arrays. The Tucker 3 model is useful because it simultaneously considers correlation between the rows, the columns, and the slices of the data cube to extract more information. You know, we talked about the multivariate adva advantage earlier in this podcast. So extending that multivariate advantage to n ways is even more powerful. So tensor decompositions is becoming a, a hot topic in data analytics and has been a hot topic in chemometrics for a while. And I think we can expect to see more innovations and uh, applications in that area. Well, would you address just the topics of machine learning and artificial intelligence related to chemometrics? Are these up and coming um, uh, techniques that will be applied in the chemometrics arena? Or what is your opinion on that? So, it's a bit of a stretch for me uh, because I've not practiced in that field of research. Peter Harrington at uh, Ohio University has made some interesting contributions in that area with machine learning and um, deep learning algorithms, which are very powerful. And I think he's been looking at solving calibration problems with those that might be intractable by other means. Well, here I have another question related to calibration transfer. It seems that's something that's close to uh, an area I've been involved in. And calibration transfer of taking methods for chromatography or mass spectrometry or vibrational spectroscopy and transferring them from one instrument to another seems to be another challenging arena for research. What do you think about that? I think it is a very challenging area, and it's one that researchers in chemometrics started addressing pretty early on in the in the evolution of the discipline. Even back into the 90s, calibration transfer was being worked on. I think here the most important consideration is to have training sets that span the full space of the variance that you expect to observe from an instrument or method. So you would expect to see the exemplars of the variance 
um, due to, say, a light bulb change in a spectrometer or variance you might expect to see due to a recalibration of a monochromator, as well as variation you might see due to uh, changes in ambient temperature um, and so forth. So having a data set that characterizes all of those sources of variation you would expect to see in the future gives you a better likelihood that your calibration transfer method will be robust to future changes in the instrument response. Well, that's insightful. Do you have anything else to say to our podcast listeners related to chemometrics or what they should be looking forward to in the future? Well, we've covered a lot of ground today and including what I consider to be some of the cutting edge areas of research. I think what I'd say is that for me, this has been a lot of fun. It, I like solving these kinds of mathematical puzzles. And uh, for people who have that kind of passion and interest, there's going to be new opportunities in different application areas, especially in the, in the bioinformatics arena. That's where I think the discipline needs to head. And we're seeing that, seeing that more and more um, researchers in that field are heading in that direction. Well, thank you, Paul, for this very informative discussion on your work. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot about recent developments in chemometrics used in spectroscopic data analysis. Your thoughts on this subject have been very stimulating, and I appreciate your taking the time to be with us. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that has worked to make this podcast possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned to our next informative analytically speaking episode. And remember what Albert Einstein once said, the true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. Have a great day.